the National Archives podcast series, The Final Balance, researching families and wealth in the 19th century using the death duty records, presented by Alistair Owens and David Green. Uh, well, it is actually a great pleasure for us to, to come here having spent many days looking at these death duty registers, and I confess also to being a real death duty register anorak. It's a great pleasure to come here and, and talk to readers and to members of staff about exp our experiences of using what are actually very exciting, very interesting, but also very complex records. And one of the things we want to try and do today is to give you some insight and understanding of those records, how to interpret them, what they might tell us, as well as to tell you a little bit about the research project that Dave kindly mentioned in his introduction. So Dave and I have been involved in a project that began in 2005, uh, funded by the UK's Economic and Social Research Council, that was entitled Women Investors in England and Wales, 1870 to 1930. And part of that work involved looking at trying to establish wealth holding patterns in Britain in the latter part of the 19th century. So using the death duty records to see what they might tell us about patterns of wealth holding and how those patterns of wealth holding were changing over that important period at the end of the 19th century. So what we're going to say today draws very much upon that research project that was a large collaborative project with, with other people at other universities in the UK. And my slide at the end will, will give credit to the various people who were involved in this project and the people who actually came here and did the majority of the work looking at the various death duty records that the National Archive holds. So what we're going to do is I'm going to begin the talk and then sort of roughly halfway through, I'm going to hand over to, to David who will tell you a bit more about that project. My part of the talk is going to focus very much on the death duty records how we might interpret them, how we might understand them, and what they might tell us about people's wealth. But how do we research wealth? How can we find out about what people owned in the 19th century? What sources do we have that tell us about these patterns of wealth holding of individuals and of families? Well, if you're lucky, and if you're very lucky, really, you may have a family which has a rich set of personal papers. So generally, the very wealthy leave behind them archives that enable you to establish in some detail what assets and investments those people owned. And there's been some academic work on a number of people in the 19th century. The fabulously wealthy Lord Overstone has been worked on by a financial historian called Ronald Mickey, who's looked in detail at the assets he owned. And then Anne Lister, who was a Yorkshire landowner, a remarkable woman, has been studied by um, a feminist historian. So if you're lucky, you've got that kind of evidence. But for most people... We don't have that kind of archive. We don't have that detailed set of personal papers. So the other source that most people turn to when they want to try and understand what people owned in the past are taxation records, records generated by the state, of course. And particularly useful in that context are the records generated when people die and when their estates are taxed for inheritance tax or what in the 19th century generally was termed as death duties. And what we want to do today is to explore those death duties, to explore the records that were generated as a consequence of the desire to tax estates when people died. And that matter of taxing of estates over the 19th century shifted, and increasingly the state became more and more keen to tax different kinds of wealth, generating whole sets of new records and a whole complexity to this issue, this issue that we hope to try and unravel. So it's a complex matter. On the left there is an image of um, a man called Sidney Buxton. And Sidney Buxton, in the late 19th century, 
wrote an excellent little pamphlet with a colleague called George Barnes entitled A Handbook to the Death Duties. Every death duty anorak knows of this reference. In fact, Sidney Buxton wrote a number of books in the late 19th century looking at um, the history of, of finance in that period before popping off to South Africa to become involved in colonial government. And that image of him is from his time there. But he wrote rather ominously in his book in 1890, the history of the death duties has been one long tale of tinkering and tacking, involving subdivisions, eccentricities, and anomalies without end, and which together form a maze which no one who has not devoted much time and patient study to the subject can hope to unravel. On every side, from every point of view, the death duties are full of anomalies and complications. And anybody who has looked at the death duties perhaps will appreciate what's being said there. Indeed, some of Britain's foremost historians of wealth have been put off by the complexities of the death duty registers. So the historian of wealth, W.D. Rubenstein, Bill Rubenstein, admits in one of his articles that he just didn't feel confident enough to get to grips with the IR26 here at the National Archive. But as somebody once said, tax doesn't have to be taxing. <laughs> and really what I want to do in my part of the talk is to try and give you a sense of the, the range of different taxes that were levied upon estates at the point of people's death, in order then to try and understand the sources that were generated and what they might tell you about an individual's wealth. And our argument is that if you understand the different sources, then you can understand what they're telling you, and with a little bit of effort, you can link together various sources that enable you to begin to build up a full picture of what somebody owned in the 19th century. So what were the death duties? Well, basically there were four of them. They were introduced at different times. Three of them, if you count 1796 as the 19th century, three of them relate to, to the period that we're interested in. Probate duty, 1694. Legacy duty, 1796. Succession duty, introduced by Gladstone in 1853. And then estate duty, properly introduced by William Harcourt in 1894. And I'm going to spend a bit of time talking about each of those death duties and then explaining how they generate different sources, most of them here at the National Archives, that we can use to try and study wealth of individuals and families. So to begin then, probate duty. The earliest and perhaps the most familiar of death duties and relatively straightforward. It was paid upon the granting of probate or administration at the point of somebody's death. So probate if somebody had left a will, administration if somebody had died intestate. And this was a tax that was charged directly to the estate and not to the beneficiaries. And that's a key distinction in inheritance taxes. Some are levied on the estate. Some are taxes that people who succeed to or benefit from that property have to themselves pay. Now, it started out as a flat rate stamp duty, but by the 19th century, it had developed into a sliding scale depending on the size of the estate. And basically, the larger the estate, the more tax you paid, although the tax was actually quite regressive in that for smaller estates, a greater proportion of that estate was paid in tax than for larger estates. But anyway, probate duty introduced in 1694, and it was levied on personal property. So that's property that does not include land or freehold buildings. And there were certain rules about the size of the estate. Initially, estates over £5 or £10  
in London. The rules changed later on in the 19th century. And the other key thing to remember about probate duty is it was levied on the gross estate, i.e. before any debts had been taken off. And that's important in terms of when you're looking at probate valuations, which I'll come on to in a moment, realising that those debts may actually alter significantly what somebody was worth. So many of you will have come across the different sources generated by probate duty. Probate accounts exist for part of the early modern period, but by the 19th century, they've pretty much disappeared. A few examples do exist here in the National Archives within the IR19 series, about which I'll say quite a lot more a little later. But basically, probate accounts which list in detail somebody's personal assets have more or less disappeared by the 19th century. However, probate valuations are available for virtually all estates that are granted probate or administration. And up until 1858, probate and administration was a matter for the ecclesiastical courts, and therefore those valuations can usually be found within the records of those ecclesiastical courts. A good example being here at the um, National Archives, the records for the Prerogative Court of Canterbury in the Prob 8 series, those being the Probate Act books, which record the basic act of probate and the valuation, the gross valuation of somebody's estate. Often you can also find this information on the wrapper to the actual wills that are often archived, both here and in other record offices around the country. And here's an example, a sort of late example from the principal probate registry, which here we have the act of probate for Annie Horton, and at the bottom you'll see there's a figure. The gross value of the estate, 264 pounds, 15 shillings and 8 pence. But the net value of the estate, interestingly, significantly less. So 89 pounds, 15 shillings and 8 pence. Illustrating that gross and net were often quite different at death. So that's the first then of our, our taxes. And that's the first of our sources that we can use for studying wealth holding. We can get some idea of somebody's overall worth by looking at what the probate valuation was. The second of our taxes is the legacy duty, which was introduced in 1796. And that was also levied on personal property, including leaseholds up until 1853. But this is rather different to probate in that it was a tax that was paid by the individual who inherited from the estate. So it wasn't simply levied from the estate itself. It was paid by the beneficiary. And again, there were certain rules about who had to pay and estates valued under £300 from 1881 were exempt. Now, legacy duty was paid by anybody except for widows or widowers who inherited from an estate. But what you paid depended on your relationship to the person who had died. So if you were a lineal descendant, if you were a son or a daughter and so on, then you paid at 1%. More distant relations, as you can see there, paid different rates. The rate increased uh, the further you get away from the individual who died. So payment was based upon what was termed consanguinity and the degree of consanguinity to the deceased person. These rates were established, as you see there, in 1815 and remained virtually unchanged for the entire 19th century. Now, what sources does the legacy duty generate? Well, two sets of sources which we're going to spend a little bit of time talking to you about. The first, and this is the source really that's been at the heart of our study, are the residuary accounts. The residuary accounts which are kept here at the National Archives in the IR19 series, and I'll say exactly what that is in a moment, 
but also in the IR59 series, which includes residuary accounts and other death duty records for famous people in the 19th and 20th centuries. Now, what residuary accounts record, and we'll see some examples in a moment, are all the unsettled personal property of the deceased and real estate that was directed to be sold at their death. And it also includes a list of debts. So it's quite a rich source in telling you about the breakdown of an individual's personal wealth. So that's our first source. The second source are the legacy duty registers, and they form part of the IR26 death duty register series here at the National Archives. And they're essentially a ledger recording legacies of personal estate, who received those legacies, and how much duty they paid. So again, some tell you something about what people owned, but also who inherited what, when they inherited it, and what it was worth. So again, quite useful in terms of trying to reconstruct uh, a family's wealth. So I thought we'd use an example, and a rather interesting example that many of you who work here will know about. The residuary account of Friedrich Engels is contained within the IR59 series. And the residuary accounts are a form, basically a tax form, a tax return, and they run to four sides. And across those four sides, you get all sorts of detail about the composition of that person's wealth. So what you see here is the account of Engels, who died in 1895. The writing, you can see in the middle of the, the, the form there, is simply where he lived. And then below that, you get the breakdown of the estate. First of all, the detail on household property, furniture, stock of wines, uh, any stock in trade, that kind of thing. And then below there, and something that we've been particularly interested in, at the bottom you get a, a listing of somebody's financial assets, stocks, shares, securities. And Engels is a rather interesting case because he had a, a rather good portfolio of stocks and shares. As a Marxist, you know, it's a good idea. In fact, as, as people know, and if you've read uh, Tristram Hunt's recent biography of Engels, Engels was the man basically who kept, kept Marx, funded Marx's writings. And the one that almost makes me laugh, if you look at what's contained in that list of shares at the bottom, one of his lots of shares was um, holdings in the Channel Tunnel Railway Company. <laughs> so don't take investment advice from a Marxist, I think is, is the, uh, the moral of that story. So anyway, you get a lot of detail on what people owned, including their financial assets. But what is particularly interesting about these residuary accounts is that contained within many of them are all sorts of other records and documents that relate to this process of valuing the estate. So in Engels' case, there is, for example, the remnants of, and I do wonder what happened to the rest of it, the remnants of um, a household inventory. On the left there, you have a letter from the solicitors declaring that attached to this document is an inventory, including a statement that somebody had been in attendance who had informed the appraiser that there were no manuscripts of any commercial or marketable value amongst the effects of Engels. So all those kind of really interesting little details about what people owned and what people were worth. I suspect that somebody at some point has removed the inventory from Engels' papers, because the only thing that actually remains of the inventory is the final page, which rather intriguingly lists his wine cellar. So you can see seven bottles of champagne, 11 and a half dozen bottles of claret, some whiskey, some port, and some hock and then some jewellery mentioned there at the bottom. So contained within many of these residuary accounts, there are actually full inventories. 
And we estimate that there's around about 2,000 entries contained within these papers for the whole of the 19th century. So quite a substantial collection of household inventories for the 19th century, which are generally quite scarce. Yes, further correspondence here from a wine merchant, not quite sure, perhaps based in Dublin, perhaps based in Glasgow, listing in detail, again, Engels's uh, stock of fine wines, including 77 dozen bottles of claret, port, champagne, uh, sherry, I think, and whiskey. So he, he liked to drink. Apparently he liked beer most, but uh, clearly wine was also one of his tipples. Rather less interestingly, perhaps, um, here's um, a letter relating to some interest that Engels had in a variety of investment trusts, I think received from some previous inheritance. So again, lots of detail about his financial portfolio. But then in many of these residuary accounts, what you also get, and this is particularly fascinating, is a list of the debts that somebody owed at the point of their death. So from this list here, you can actually ascertain where Engels shopped. Maples in Tottenham Court Road, the furniture store, for example. You know who his butcher was, his baker, who supplied him with milk, who his doctor was. And indeed, perhaps one of the most interesting things here, third up from the bottom, you can see that he owed the administrators of Karl Marx £225, perhaps something to do with um, publishing interest, not sure. But anyway, a lot of detailed information about people's credit transactions at a particular moment in their life. Okay, so potentially a very rich set of data. Unfortunately, and this is a big unfortunately, the IL-19 series is very limited. At some point, I think, in the early 20th century, it was heavily weeded, so that there are only really a few papers surviving from each year of the century. We estimate that there's probably around 4,500 to 5,000 of these accounts surviving for the period 1796 to 1902 when they finish. And for the project we, we undertook, we looked at all of them between 1870 and 1902, which uh, equals 1,448 accounts. And we've also been doing some work to collect material for the earlier period too. So it's a small sample. It's not perhaps a source that could be widely used by genealogists, but some people might get lucky in finding their relative amongst the sample. And one of the things we're trying to do is to create an index of the people we know about so that people could check to see if any of their relatives are there. We have done some work to look at the sample, what remains, and we think it's broadly representative of the population as a whole of England and Wales, but of course we can't necessarily guarantee that. But because there are quite a lot of them, it does allow you to do some more systematic work looking at patterns of wealth holding in England and Wales, looking at differences between regions, for example, or looking at the differences between men and women, which is something that we've been interested in. I should say the household inventories have been the focus of some research by a PhD student of mine, Leslie Hoskins, who's been looking at them through a collaboration with the Jeffrey Museum for Domestic Interiors, thinking about what they tell us about 19th century homes. So again, quite a rich source there that previously has been untapped. Okay, so that's the residuary accounts. That's the first set of records generated by legacy duty. The second set are the legacy duty registers, and this series is contained within the IR26 series here at the National Archives. And the news here is, is slightly more positive. Virtually all estates that were liable for legacy duty will appear in these registers. So nobody has destroyed any of these registers. Some of them now are digitized by the National Archives for the earlier part of the century. And they're interesting because they tell you who got what from the will, how much they got, when they got it, 
and what it was all worth. So you can begin to understand when people inherited and how significant that inheritance might have been to them. The problem in terms of studying wealth is that it doesn't necessarily tell you about the composition of that wealth. You don't necessarily know that Engels owned lots of shares. Often, bequests of property are much more general, so you don't necessarily get that detail. The other good thing about the IR26 legacy duty registers is that you can look at an index, and the index here is on microfiche or microfilm, um, and it's the IR27 series, so you can look up relatively easily if your ancestor appears in these uh, registers. And I'll, I'll show you an example of a succession duty register a little later, which is very similar in format to the legacy duty registers. But moving on to our, our third tax, our third death duty, succession duty was introduced in 1853 by Gladstone, a rather stern-looking Gladstone there. And this was introduced because up until this point, the only kind of property that was taxed at death was personal property. And it was felt unfair that the landed interests were getting away with not paying any inheritance tax. So there was a desire, was a desire to start taxing land and settled property, and that was exactly what succession duty did. Again, it was something that was paid by the person who succeeded to the estate, the person who inherited. And the rates of um, succession duty were, initially at least, exactly the same as the rates for legacy duty. So the closer you were in terms of your relationship to the deceased, the lower the rate you paid. Now, succession duty, what sources does that generate for studying wealth holding? Well, unfortunately, there isn't really an equivalent to the residuary account, or at least there aren't any that survive. So although initially, when these duties were levied, a form rather like the residuary account detailing the exact composition of somebody's real estate and settled property would have been submitted. There are one or two that survive in the IR-19 and the IR-59. On the whole, they don't survive, and instead we have to rely upon the succession duty registers, which are another series within the IR-26 death duty registers here at the National Archives. And those, rather like the legacy duty registers, provide you with a description of the property, the name of the person who inherited, uh, for fairly complex reasons that I won't go into, it tells you their age, but quite interesting if you're uh, researching your family. And it also tells you the net annual income that comes from their real estate. So real estate was valued in a different way to personal property. Rather than valuing what was termed the capital value of real estate, i.e. what it would have been worth if you'd have sold it on the open market, instead they valued the annual income. And that was all to do with how succession duty was assessed. So in terms of our project, if we wanted to try and understand what people owned when they died, we need to add this information on real estate, which is in the succession duty registers, to that information that we can get from the residuary accounts in the IR-19. And we checked this out with various people, and they suggested to us that if you take the net annual value, the yearly income, that is estimated to come from the real estate and times it by 30, that gives you a rough idea of what that real estate would have been worth on the open market. So bringing those two sets of records together, we can now begin to understand more fully what somebody was worth and what wealth they owned at death. Now, the records are very complex, and this is where historians in the past have got rather confused 
and often given up trying to understand how you can interpret them and what they might tell you about an individual's wealth. Um, I apologise that it's rather difficult to see this from the audience, but I was going to show you an example here of exactly what kind of information you can glean from these particular records. And this is an example from a succession duty register of a man called Edward Woodnut. And uh, first of all, on the top left-hand side there, you have the personal details of that individual. So it's Edward Woodnut who lived at um, 51 C Street in Newport on the Isle of Wight. And he was a retired mariner who died on the 23rd of January, 1893. So those are his personal details. We then have his executors listed, followed by the date of the grant of probate. And if there were several grants, then you'll get all those dates. Next, in that column, we have the valuation of the estate, both the gross and the net at that particular point in time. Then, moving down underneath the personal details, you have a description of different elements of his property that were to be passed on to somebody else. So there we have three freehold houses, premises number 44, 45, and 46, on Key Street in Newport on the Isle of Wight. That was a property that was being passed on in this case. Then over here, we have the name of the person inheriting. And close to that, and often it's quite difficult to exactly find this information on the page, we have the net annual value from that property, abbreviated to NAV, N-A-V. And you can see, just where the arrow is pointing there, there is a figure. That's a net annual income from those three houses. In the column there, we have what reads as SUCC, S-U-C-C, which is simply the type of duty that's being paid here. Next column is the age of the beneficiary. They're recorded ages because in order to levy the actual duty, they did a rather complex calculation, timesing the annual yield by a figure that gave some indication of the likely benefit that somebody would derive from that property over the course of their life. So they did an actuarial-style calculation to work out what the overall value of that property might be to that person, and then levied the duty on top of that. But I won't go into the details of that calculation. Uh, then you have the information on the rate of duty, and I think, I think that one says 4.5%. And then right over there, on the right-hand side, you finally get information on what duty it was that the individual paid. So a complex set of records, and actually probably that's a rather simpler one compared to many, and often you have all sorts of scrolls across these pages cross-referencing this information to other records, noting observations, noting correspondence that might have come in about the particular estate. And people added to this information for a number of years because often individuals didn't inherit immediately at the time of the deceased but might have inherited, you know, 15, 20, even 25 years later. So this information was annotated at a later date. One or two other small details, you find references here to other records, some of which I've been mentioning earlier on. The SA is a succession account, which is where you get the detailed valuation of the real estate, which is what I said don't, doesn't really exist anymore. But the RA at the bottom there is a residuary account. That's the example we saw earlier from Friedrich Engels, which is where you get that breakdown of the, the personal property. And the reference refers you to the the actual paperwork, so that's an internal referencing system. Okay, so that's the succession duty, the final of our 
death duties that was introduced towards the end of the 19th century, and they had two goes at this, was the estate duty. It was first attempted by George Goshen in 1889, and this was rather like probate duty in that it was a tax simply levied on the estate. It wasn't something paid by beneficiaries. And it was levied on the capital value, the market value, of the real and the personal property. And it was levied at the rate of 1% on all personal estates above £10,000. But then all sorts of complex anomalies um, in terms of whether or not somebody owned real or settled property. So it was a rather complex affair. And because it was so complex, and because by this time we had now four different inheritance taxes, in 1894, William Harcourt decided to try and simplify matters and create a state duty, which formed an umbrella for several different inheritance taxes, succession duty, legacy duty, but replaced probate duty with a state duty, which was a flat tax levied on all estates, but again at a graduated scale. So this was widely seen as a very progressive act at the time, something that tried to sort out various anomalies and make equal taxation of real and personal property. And in terms of the sources that were generated by estate duty, then again there are a kind of series of pro forma affidavits where executors and appraisers had to swear to the value of different elements of the estate, and unfortunately most of those no longer survive. But what we do have here, and this is the, the rich and exciting source, are the estate duty registers from 1894, which again tell you in some detail who succeeded to the estate, what they got, when they got it, and what it was worth. That's an example of a, an affidavit, again, one from Friedrich Engels, which exists in his paperwork, and then finally an example of an estate duty register, very similar to the example of a succession duty register that I showed you before, and equally complex. So, um, wrapping up my section of this, we have then a series of records that we can bring together to try and understand the composition of an individual's wealth at the point of their death. The residuary account, the IR-19, which lists for us an individual's personal estate and their debts at the time of their deceased. And also it includes on that form often the probate value. So it's a record essentially of two taxes, legacy duty and probate duty. We can link that if we're lucky enough to have an IR-19, to the succession duty and estate duty registers, the IR-26 series. And we can link it by looking at the IR-27, the index. And those registers tell us about the real estate or the settled property that that individual owned. So by bringing the two together, potentially we know the total value, the total worth of that individual when they died. And if we want to know what happened to the property, how it got passed on within the family, then there are other sources we can, of course, link to. Wills, relatively straightforward to find wills now. Somerset House originally, but now up on High Hoburn, you can find very quickly uh, most people who you're interested in. And then, of course, moving back to the IR26 legacy succession and estate duty registers, you can find out what actually happened as a consequence of the will. The will tells you what the testator wanted to do, the legacy succession duty and estate registers tell you what really happened, when people got the property and what they really got. So you can pull all those things together. And of course, you can also link to other sources. And one of the things we've done 
as part of our project is to establish the age at which people died, to try and investigate how people's wealth changes over their life course. Was the wealth composition of a 35-year-old different to a 75-year-old? And of course, we can also find out about their household, because households are going to influence the kinds of wealth that people owned. And we can do that by linking relatively easily to the census through Ancestry or some other portal like that. So it is possible, using this rich set of records here at the National Archives, to establish an individual's wealth portfolio. And that's what was the aim of our project. And I'm now going to hand over to David, who's going to tell you a little bit more about some of the things that we found out about wealth in the later 19th century. Thanks, Alistair. I have the easy job, which is uh, to show you one or two uh, case studies and how, by putting together this uh, varied set of information, we can start to look at broader patterns of wealth holding. I'm going to do that uh, through a case study of a very ordinary person, Eliza Pickering, who was born in Greystoke, Cumberland in 1836. We know that from the census enumerators books. And who died in 1880 on the 8th of December in Penrith. We know that from her IR19 account. So by tracing back through the census enumerators, we can then start to piece together her own family history. So in the 1841 census, we see her living at an inn on Angel Lane in Penrith. And I've gone on Google Maps. Unfortunately, they didn't travel down that particular street. There is one pub on there, but I hesitate to suggest it's the one that they ran. Anne was Anne Pickering the Elder. The mother was 30 years old at the time, had four children, two sons and two daughters, and no husband. Uh, it was suggested she was a widow, unlucky at 30. They had three servants, all involved in the inn. Eliza Pickering, the youngest of the daughters, stayed with her mother all the way through to 1871. The two sons had disappeared from the census by 1851, which meant that Anne, the older, and Anne, the younger, and Eliza were still there running the pub, and Anne's mother was described as the innkeeper. That continued through to 1861, at which point um, we lose Eliza's elder sister, Anne, so that in the 1871 census at Strickland Gate, which is where they'd moved to, not very far from Angel, uh, Angel Lane, there was Anne, and Anne the Elder, and Anne the Younger, so a daughter looking after the mother, who at that time was described as a retired innkeeper. Eliza Pickering herself was described as an assistant innkeeper. So the, these people were clearly running pubs all the way through right until the time that Eliza Pickering herself died. So I suppose a bit like a, a kind of 19th century East Enders version. Well, we can piece together what Eliza Pickering had at the time that she died in 1880 because we have both her IR19 residuary count and we also have her records in the IR26. From her residuary account, we know that she had some shares. She had some money invested in the Great Western Railway, pretty safe bet, and she also had uh, a re reasonably larger sum of money in the Cumberland Union Banking Company, a, a local bank. She also had some dividends or rents owing to her, and those are recorded in the, in the R19. 
And her IR-19 residuary accounts also list the fact that she had some debts of £166, 19 shillings and 10 pence. If she was running an inn, that may well have been to do with the stock that she'd bought on credit, but we don't know that. If we stopped at that point, we wouldn't realise that she also actually had some real estate. So when we went to look for her IR-26 account, we found that she had the bulk of her wealth invested in uh, some house or property, and that was worth £511. We derived that figure because we've got the net annual value, the rental, which was £17, multiply that by 30, and you get that figure of 511. So her total gross estate, before taking off those debts, was around about 800 pounds. She's not very wealthy in terms of the, the kind of fabulous wealthy Lord Overstone that we talked about right at the start, but she's not that untypical of a, a group of wealth holders, about 10% of people who died would have had some form of wealth that made it necessary for them to write a will and submit it for probate. Well, the will that Eliza made was done uh, a day before she died. She was clearly <laughs> quite ill at that point. It was witnessed by Thomas Jackson, MD, so I can only assume that's the doctor who was uh, treating her, and Jane Thompson. We don't know who Jane Thompson is, but we do have her address, Petrol Terrace, Penrith. She left all the personal estate to the what we think is her only family survivor, and that is Anne Rudd, who was her, noted as being her sister, even though obviously she'd married by that time. We also know the name of her uh, brother-in-law, and we also know his occupation from the, the will uh, and also the IR-26. So everything went to Anne Rudd. This is the uh, IR-26 entry. Eliza Pickering is in the top row, so it's a very straightforward uh, account. It just lists property and then real estate on the two separate lines. It identifies who they're going to, her sister. It gives the name of the sister. It explains what uh, duty was payable, what the value was, and so on, exactly as uh, has been we've described earlier. So this is a very straightforward account. Well, what's the point of that kind of individual case study? Um, well, one of the points is that we can start to put together how typical this was of perhaps different groups. Now, in terms of Eliza Pickering, she was uh, uh, involved in the innkeeping business. How many were there? If you look at the 1871 census, there were, uh, in terms of women at any rate, something like nearly 16,000 women described as uh, an innkeeper or a hotel keeper or publican, but another 61,553 described as an innkeeper's wife. Innkeepers, male innkeepers, uh, roughly the same number. So she was one of approximately 61 or uh, it could be anywhere between 61 or 75 or 76,000 women involved in the innkeeping trade at the time. And we can do this for all the IR-19s for which we've got an occupation. And one of, the, one of the advantages of that particular source is it also lists women as well as men. And we always assume that women didn't own anything, but that wasn't 
That certainly wasn't true in the 19th century, as we're finding out. And in fact, the rest of the project that we've been involved with looks at shareholding, and we found over time a much greater proportion of women starting to own shares, as indeed Eliza Pickering did. Well, if we add the age of death from the civil registers of birth, marriages, and deaths, we can start to look at how much individuals owned in different age groups. We can compare men and women. Well, we know that Eliza died when she was in her 40s, and she owned about 800 or so pounds when she died. So that means that she's fairly typical of women of that age who died uh, leaving some sort of money. And generally, as people aged, they got wealthier. Uh, retirement was unusual. People often worked until they died, uh, which is probably true of her, although she died early. And so they, particularly for men, continued to accumulate wealth. But you can see that pattern over time. So we start to be able to place the individuals in a much wider context by age and by gender. And we can also do that by region. This is a, a fairly um, basic map, just picking out one or two counties or regions and averaging out the different kinds of wealth that all the people in our IR19 sample, that's uh, nearly 1,500 people, had. And we start, when we start to do this, there are some interesting differences that occur. So, for example, we take London which is shown at the uh, bottom right. Londoners tended not to have much real estate, and that's because a lot of London was owned by large aristocratic landlords, and a lot of it was therefore on leasehold rather than freehold. But on the contrary, they owned quite a lot of shares. So they were investing increasingly in uh, different types of companies, particularly those that were involved in the empire. Compare that to somewhere like the southwest, which is shown on the far left, where real estate was much more important than shareholding. And you can compare that to different parts of the country, Yorkshire, the southeast, and so on. So we can start to build up a regional pattern of types of portfolios that individuals were likely to have had when they died. And this then helps us to understand about where money was being derived to fund British economic growth. Was it going into shares or was it going into land? What kind of land was it going into? And Alistair and I are doing some work on that uh, at the precise time and how much of someone's estate was going into those different kinds of assets. And we can, carrying on, look at different kinds of estates. So just to round that up, what I think we can do with the taxation records, and I, I think uh, Alistair's probably one of the, I could say the world's leading expert now on, the, on how to interpret these taxation records, is we can get to understand the way people put their different types of wealth together, how that changed over time, how it changed over their age and life course, how it differed between men and women, how it differed between regions, and we can even go down to individual localities 
individual towns as opposed to rural areas. So we can begin to start to understand the kind of choices made by people to invest in certain kinds of assets. And in particular, the 19th century is interesting because land had a lower rate of return compared to shares. And so we can begin to investigate the way people switched. I'm going to use the word flipped. <laughs> but flipped between one kind of asset and, and another, depending on the profitability. And why should we do that? Well, one of the reasons is that most business historians who try to explore the rise of Britain as a, a nation of shareholders have looked at the availability of shares, whereas what they haven't really looked at is who were buying them. So as people aged, did they start to buy more shares? And that's something we can start to do. So if you have an aging population and they need to provide for their retirement through dividend income perhaps, do you tend to get more people investing in shares? In which case, do you market particular types of shares, perhaps less risky shares? If more women were buying shares, which is what we found, women tend to be more risk-averse, do you start to issue shares that are less risky? And there are different types of shares you can do. So by looking at these kind of investments, we can start to understand the way that companies started to tailor the issue of shares to the market of shareholders. And uh, looking ahead to the future, we can also start to look at what kind of assets were given to different types of people. So did women get different kind of assets when they inherited from their parents or from their other kin? And how did that change with changes in the property laws, particularly relating to married women? So we can start to ask a whole range of questions about British economic performance, about gender, and about wealth that previously we couldn't do. Well, one plug, uh, I'm not going to say, uh, we, we've plugged our sponsors, the Economic Social Research Council, enough. We have a website uh, which uh, many of our papers are up there. Uh, we continue to add to it the index of the IR19 together with their, all names of the people in our sample, their gross value, their net value, together with the reference to the IR19 series and the IR26 series uh, are available. You can download it from that website. You need to go to the publication tab and under publications you'll see working papers and under working papers you'll see working paper number three which is the title of I think it has something like guide to the IR26 and IR19 and below that you'll see a file where you can get the data. And none of this would have been possible without a, a, a very large team of uh, researchers and um, database designer and these are the people who were involved in it. If you have any questions, both Alistair and I would be very pleased to answer them. Thank you very much for listening. This event was recorded live on the 4th of June 2009 at the National Archives in Kiel.